Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far off from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, since you are good, we know that your word is good. And so use your word to guide us into all righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In this story, there's a teacher of the law that asks Jesus a question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Questions like this were common. The scribes identified 613 separate commands in the law, 365 of which were negative, 248 of which were positive. They further divided the law into greater or lesser commands, which basically meant most important and least important. So the question that's asked of all the commands, which is the most important, is the sort of question that fits how the scribes think about the law. And understand, the scribe is not asking about which laws need to be obeyed and which ones can be safely ignored. That's not the idea. The idea isn't to, let's expose what are the least important and then we don't have to obey that. Now, that's not the scribe's intention. He's asking, what is the fundamental meaning of the law? Upon what does the law depend? Of all the commands, what is the one command that best explains all of the commands? And in verses 29 and 30, Jesus gives an answer from Israel's daily confession known as the Shema, found in Deuteronomy 6, which says that God is the only God and people are to love him with their whole being. But he doesn't stop with just that one command. Because one cannot love God in isolation from their other relationships in life. And for this reason, Jesus couples the Shema with the command to love one's neighbor as oneself, which is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And so these two commands, Jesus says, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These two commands combine to form the fundamental meaning of the law, which means that the meaning of the Old Testament law is love. 
And, and pause for a moment and appreciate how Jesus has just dismantled the most common view of God in the Bible found in our culture today. The most common view of God in the Bible in our culture today is to say that the God of the Old Testament is angry and wrathful, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And Jesus just dismantled that notion. Now, we know in the New Testament that there is wrath. Just read Matthew chapter 23 and see what Jesus has to say to the Pharisees, or read the book of Revelation. But we also see here that in the Old Testament, the meaning of the law, and appreciate first what the law is, the law is the earthly manifestation of the character of God. And the meaning of the law is love. Love for God and love for neighbor. And since love is the fundamental meaning of the law, we would do well to learn about love. And so from this passage, we learn at least seven things about love. The first lesson in love is that love has broad application. Love has broad application. We see here that Jesus commands us to love our neighbor. And so the question then is, who is your neighbor? Well, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, from which this command comes, defines a neighbor as one of your people. And so in the context of Leviticus, that would mean a fellow Israelite. But it doesn't stop there. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 and 34, extends the love command to resident aliens. And so it's not just love for your people. It's not just love for those who are near. It's also love for those who are far. It's love for Jew and Gentile. And this is much the subject that Jesus takes up in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke chapter 10. Jesus defines neighbor as not just a Jew, but even a Samaritan, even a hated Samaritan. And what Jesus is doing in the parable of the Good Samaritan is he's changing the question. The question isn't, who is your neighbor? Because everyone's your neighbor. The Jew is your neighbor. The Gentile is your neighbor. The Samaritan is your neighbor. Those far and near are your neighbor. So that's not the right question. The right question, according to the parable of the Good Samaritan, is to whom will you be a neighbor? And so... As we see Jesus' commands here, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The question then for you is, to whom will you be a neighbor? And so married couples, are you having trouble loving your spouse? Well, you are called to love your neighbor. You are, loved to, you are called to love those who are near, and your spouse is, is very near. Boys and girls, are you having trouble loving your brothers and sisters? Well, you are called to love your neighbor, which most certainly includes your brothers and sisters. Do you have neighbors? Well, you're called to love your actual neighbors, because neighbors are certainly included in the command to love your neighbors. And maybe you think, well, you know, you know sometimes my spouse or sometimes my brothers and sisters, you know, it feels more like they're enemies than neighbors. Well, Jesus called you to love your enemies too. So, love your neighbor, love your enemies. And so, the first lesson in love is that because love has broad application, you must love those both far and near. The second lesson in love 
is that love is a concrete action. Love is a concrete action. Now, Jesus cites this command from Leviticus chapter 19, which spells out God's law for living. And it leaves little doubt about what love for neighbor means. Love is far more concrete than the soft and flabby idea of love that modern people have. In our day, people think that love is a demeanor. Or people think that love is something on a psychological level. It's a feeling or it's a positive vibe. Love, people think, is not being judgmental or it's always being accepting or it's being tolerant about everything that you do. But Leviticus 19 doesn't mention any of those things. In Leviticus 19, love is not stealing, not lying, and not slandering. In Leviticus 19, love is acting with kindness and justice. Now, kindness, understand, is doing concrete, useful actions for people. Kindness is not saying, I'll pray for you. Kindness is actually praying for them and then doing something to help them in their difficulty. And Leviticus 19 talks about love as executing justice. And justice there in Leviticus 19.15 is defined as not giving preferential treatment to the rich or the poor, but to judge equitably. And so the modern notion of love is just basically feel-goodism. It's just these therapeutic vibes. But the biblical teaching on love is something that's ethical. It's something that's concrete. The new idea of love prizes feeling good. The biblical idea of love prizes being good to others and doing good for others. Why? What's the point? The point isn't just to do a bunch of good things. No, the point of loving, the point of being good and doing good to others is to bring all people everywhere without exception, high and low, rich and poor, learned and ignorant, compatriot and alien, into the full warmth and joy of the household of faith. That's why we love. And so the second lesson in love is that because love is a concrete action, you must do tangible good things to show love to others. The third lesson in love is that love never supports sin. Love never supports sin. And this is important to note because again modern people think love means unqualified acceptance even of someone's sin. And as such, modern people think holiness is an obstacle to love. They think of holiness an obstacle as when you take the magnets and flip them over and try to bring them together, but they won't come together. They think that holiness and love can't coexist. But this is not the case. The command to love your neighbor in Leviticus 19 is actually placed under the overall command in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, which says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so the demonstration of God's holiness leads to the love of God. 
And so God's holiness includes his love, which means that holiness and love work together. And that's why love for God requires obeying God. And so that means if you want to be a loving person, you need to study the law of God. If you want to be a loving person, you must study the character of God. And in the character of God, God is holy and God is love. And love never supports that which is unholy. 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light. In other words, God is holy. 1 John 4.8 tells us that God is love. And so that means that God is holy love. And that comes together as one thing, not as two things that are split apart. God is holy love. And so how do you know that you love God? Well, according to 1 John 2.3, you keep his commands. And so the third lesson in love is that because love never supports sin, it's not loving when you support people in their sin. The fourth lesson in love is that love for God is expressed by loving others. So think about this. Love for God, who you cannot see, is expressed by love for others whom you can see. And notice, when Jesus is asked this question, the first thing he does is he quotes the, the Shema, God is one. And then he says, love the Lord your God. Why does he do it that way? What is the connection between the fact that God is one and that we then are commanded to love God? Well, it's because the obligation to love God is based on his oneness. And because God is one, that means our love for him must be one. Or in other words, our love for him must be undivided. And this is where this, this new language, it's about 300 years old, this new language of talking about so-called heart knowledge over here and then head knowledge over here, as if the person can be divided. This is a brand new idea, very common in evangelical circles. It's very dangerous and it's very disruptive. Our love for God is not divided, as if the soul can be chopped in half and then pointed in two different directions. Notice what happens when you do that. The one goes over here, the one goes over here. But the command in Scripture is to love God with your whole being, to love the one God with your whole being, which means our love for God can't be chopped up and divided in these ways. And so love for God has a rightful first place in our loyalty. It is only when God is in his rightful place that we then place people in their appropriate place. And so if God isn't first in our love, if God isn't first in our devotion and in our loyalty, well, then that means another person is first in our love. Another person is first in our loyalty. And that then means you're asking someone else to do what only God can do. And this is how relationships become idolatrous. When we have someone trying to perform what only God can perform because we've placed them first in our love or first in our loyalty. But in Christianity, what Jesus is showing to us here is that love for others finds its true place only on the basis of a prior love for the one true God. 
And there's a very particular application for young single people here. Often when people start pursuing a mate, they want to get married, maybe teenagers, people in their people in their early 20s, or just at any point when you're trying to pursue a mate, you start looking for husband or a wife. And what often happens in these situations is infatuation and obsession sets in. Well, why does that happen? Maybe we call it puppy love. Why does this happen? Well, it happens because God has not been put in his proper place first. We become obsessed or infatuated with this person because we aren't loving the one true God with the oneness of our being. And so, we must prioritize our love for God first, our loyalty for God first. And once that priority is cemented, then you realize it's impossible to really love God without loving your neighbors. That the application of loving God as the first finds application then in loving others. And so love for God is expressed by loving others. And this is why we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so the fourth lesson in love is that because love for God is expressed by loving others, you can have assurance of faith when your life is marked by loving others. The fifth lesson in love is that love is more than sacrifices. Love is more than sacrifices. This is what we see, verse 33, the scribe says to Jesus, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then verse 34, Jesus approves of that statement. In other words, love is more important than the whole system of temple sacrifices. Now, this follows very closely some famous Old Testament verses which say this thing almost explicitly. For example, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Also, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 says, To obey is better than sacrifice. And so Jesus approves of the scribe's word here uh, when he basically says this very thing. And this, no doubt, would encourage Christians in that generation that they will not have to continue with ritual sacrifices once the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lamb of God is made. But more broadly, when people sincerely love God and others, they have offered the one sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God. And maybe people read a passage like this, you know, what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love neighbor, and they think, well, my, but my love is imperfect. And let me affirm you in that. That's true. Your love is imperfect. But, but the command here isn't that you have perfect love. No, God's love is perfect. And we are living under the application of his perfect love, namely the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and then his resurrection from the dead. And so what he's asking of you is a sincere love. Not a perfect love. A sincere love. Can you offer a sincere and genuine love to God? That's what's being said here in verse 30, 
3. Because God, in His kindness, accepts your sincere love. It may not be perfect, but is it sincere? And so love is more than burnt offerings and sacrifices because the loyalties of your soul are discerned by what you love, not by the sacrifice you made to make up for the fact that you didn't love right. And so the loyalties of your soul are discovered by what you love, which is really to say the loyalties of your soul are discovered by what you obey. You want to know what you love? Let's just see what you obey. Augustine said, When there is a question as to whether a man is good, one does not ask what he believes or what he hopes, but what he loves. And so, the fifth lesson in love is that because love is more than sacrifices, you love God by obeying Him. The sixth lesson in love is that biblical love is a foreign language to the world. Biblical love is a foreign language to the world. Jesus' words here are a vision that goes beyond the trend of love today. It goes against the zeitgeist. It goes against the current cultural momentum about defining love. We talk a lot about who's got control of the dictionary, and then we race to the idea of we need to make sure we define what a man is and a woman is, and we should. But really, the concept of love may be where the tug of war on meaning and definition is most important. The way our culture has redefined love has sowed a tremendous amount of mischief into the culture and, as a byproduct, into our churches. And so God has commanded us to love God first and our neighbor second, and both more than we love ourselves. But when it comes to the issue of how people should treat each other, the world's answer is basically, be nice. And often in churches now, the church's answer is, be nice. How do you love people? Be nice. The problem is that the English word for nice comes from the old French word that means careless, clumsy, weak, poor, needy, simple, silly, foolish. The Oxford English Dictionary says that the earliest English sentence with the word nice comes from around 1300 AD, and the definition then was foolish, silly, simple, and ignorant. In Sir Gowan in the Green Knight, nice is used to mean insane. In our day, nice means basically agreeable or satisfactory. You know, so, you know, we say, that's a nice car. That's a nice piece of furniture. Oh, the waitress was nice tonight. Basically, the word nice is the word we use to avoid making a meaningful statement. And the world says that the way people should treat each other is to be nice. And in contrast to this, the late Dr. Horace Hummel, professor at Concordia Seminary, said, the Christian church is more than merely a collection of nice people telling each other how nice it is to be nice. <laughs> and so the sixth lesson in love is that because the world doesn't understand biblical love, you can't live by the world's standard of love. And the seventh and final lesson in love is that love gets its meaning from Jesus.
The first and second greatest commands are old. Both of them come from the Old Testament. And yet Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection gives us the real life model of the greatest commandment. Through the cross and resurrection, Jesus brings us into the age to come, an age in which love endures forever. When we love as Christ did, taking up our cross because Christ died on the cross, it is evidence that we have made the transition from living for a world fading away to living for an eternal world. We cannot love God and neighbor unless we die to sin like Christ died to sin and are raised in new life as Christ was raised in new life. And this we have through faith in Christ. He gives us new life. And what about this new life? Where does it come from exactly? Well, it comes from Christ's work of redemption in his actual substitutionary endurance of the curse of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. In the death of Christ, God is reconciled to sinners when those sinners have faith and trust in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Their legal responsibility to the curse is forever destroyed and their gift of eternal life with the Father is secured. And as a result of Christ's redeeming work, the redeemed now receive from God the gifts of faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. The reason that the greatest commandment is easier to talk about than to live by is because we are living in this highly pressurized, haste-filled, faster-than-fast, disposable, noisy, intrusive kind of world. We can't pretend that we exist in this environment unscathed. And that's why Christ bids us to come and die. You cannot love God and neighbor unless you are constantly dying to all that is perverted, dark, and self-centered within yourself. And by faith in Christ, this is the Spirit's work within you. It is the Spirit enabling this kind of self-denial and this kind of love that brings to life the works of the Spirit. It's called vivification and puts to death the sins of the flesh. It's called mortification. So that means for those of you who are baptized into the covenant of grace, you are not your own. Your baptism is the Spirit's mark on you that through faith you have been bought with a price, which means that your goals and your feelings and your ambitions and your desires and your habits all fall under the rule of Christ. Understand, Christ has given you your name. Christ has given you your calling. You don't name yourself. You receive that from the Father by faith. And by the way, this is why it's good and proper that parents name their children and children don't name themselves. Children receive the name they've given them. So a parent names a child and then the child receives the name. Just like the Father names you in baptism and puts his mark on you with his spirit and calls you 
and then by faith you receive the name you've been given. And so, in conclusion, what is the chief habit of all Christians? Holy love. Holy love is the core reality of the kingdom of God. It's the core ethic of the kingdom of God, and it's the chief habit being cultivated by the Spirit in His people. And so, the seventh lesson in love is that because love is defined by Jesus, you who are in Jesus are filled with a holy love. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we blush to think how slender our love is. And so through the power of your Spirit, in the truth of Christ, enlarge our heart to hold your love and to give it to others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.